Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think we get so distracted with all the gadgets and all the, the materialism and consumerism that we forget people. And so we forget that that person who is laying on the side of the sidewalk with their sign and completely filthy is actually a person mm -hmm. because we don't allow them into our community or we're not part of their community or something. And so it doesn't really matter. But the real truth is that every person is e of equal value and it doesn't matter the degrees or the amount, the paycheck that comes home or whatever, how big the house is or whatever. It's the soul. People have souls and Every person's soul is of equal value and needs to be treated that way. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Matt Nava, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for uh, taking the time to join us. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Yeah, so I came across you guys uh, and your story by way of our mutual friend, Yana. Uh, and when she wrote in and uh, told me everything that you were up to, I was like, uh, yeah. They definitely sound like people that I would love to talk to and have with the Unmistakable Creative. So it's a, a pleasure to have you here. And on that note, can you tell us uh, a bit about yourselves, your story, uh, the journey that you guys are on, your background, and how that has led to everything that you're up to in the world today? Okay. Um, well, uh, I guess to start from the to, – to go back to like uh, how maybe a lot of it began, um, when we were kids, our parents uh, – taught us at a pretty young age that we were able to make an impact in the world. And they taught us that by giving us an opportunity to try to do that. Um, when both of our parents, both of our dads are doctors and both of our moms are nurses. <laughs> and uh, so as, as we were kids growing up, our parents did um, medical work uh, amongst the poor, uh, not, not full-time, but uh, they would take their vacations and travel to other countries and provide medical care to, to people who needed it, who couldn't afford it. And we grew up watching that and also getting an opportunity to participate in that in a lot of different ways. Um, and so when we met, we met in Haiti and uh, we were also at that point adults working among the poor. Um, Eva was teaching at an international school and I was doing community development work and, uh, as we married and started to grow a family, we really wanted to create opportunities for our own children to have the chance to realize that they could make a difference in the world and, uh, and also to give them experiential uh, living so that they could see the world and they could see how they could make an impact. And, and we wanted them to be aware of mm -hmm. what's going on. Uh, it's pretty easy in America to live within a uh, a little bubble of your own needs and first world problems. Yeah, a lot of first world problems. Mm -hmm. um, and so, giving a, giving our kids a chance to see the world and um, and and get to know the people mm 
mm-hmm. who are who make it up that are outside of our normal sphere of experience and influence was a pretty that was high on our priority list. But we didn't uh, end up getting jobs that paid very well. Um, they were life giving in a lot of good ways, but um, they didn't pay very well. So we didn't get to really travel the world like we did when we were just the two of us. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we started to get sucked into the mainstream kind of... Chasing after the American dream. Yeah, keeping up with the Joneses. You know, it, it started subtly enough. Um, we had the opportunity to buy a home in Los Angeles, which was unheard of. Um, <laughs> and uh, and But we were able to do it. And so that was amazing. And, uh, and we've been living here, but... Along with that came different kinds of responsibilities and also, I don't know, some like different expectations that some we put on ourselves and some we felt from community around us. If we didn't, if we didn't succumb to them, we definitely felt the pressures to succumb. <laughs> and it's stuff like, you know, making sure your kids have all of the, you know, opportunities, opportunities that everybody is supposed to have in America, you know, with... All the music lessons and all sports. the sports stuff and all of the whatever. Um, Not bad things, just, no, just things that take t- family time mm-hmm. away from me, us. And yeah, so our schedules kept getting more and more and more and more and more filled up with stuff. And then our house started getting more and more and more filled up with stuff. And before we knew it, most of our life felt like it was revolving around managing our schedule and our stuff. Um, and that was just not the life that we had when we met. It wasn't the life that we dreamed we would have, um, when we had kids and we said, you know, we got to do something different about this. We didn't really know what that was going to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, part of it involved me really taking some chances and trying to dive into the film industry, um, like I had been wanting to do. And that was a big reason that we moved out to L.A., for me to go to grad school and start actually, I had been teaching theater and doing a lot of um, regional theater and touring around America doing stuff and I wanted to switch to film and so we came out here and uh, I started getting work. Uh, we, we decided to make the decision, you know, like rather than just work to try to keep up with all of our stuff and our schedule, we'll we'll make some room in our schedule, we'll give up some things and we'll start to prioritize making movies. And that worked out really great for a few months until movies started taking so much time that we weren't able to keep the balance there either. And they weren't paying enough for him to quit his first full-time job. So he was doing it in addition to 40 hours plus. Yeah. So after about a year of that, we realized that that was really destructive. All that time away from the family, in spite of really great projects we were a part of, it was becoming destructive to our family and to our marriage. Um, so we really, we pulled back and we spent a whole year pretty much doing marriage counseling, trying to find out, you know, can we survive this? Um, hopeful that we could, um, not wanting to give up on the dreams, but also realizing that we were going to have to change some stuff about how we were living in order to see some of that happen. Have more health. Yeah, we just were, it was unbalanced. So, um, after about a year of uh, marriage counseling in a lot of different ways, um, we were in a, a really great group marriage counseling experience. And at, at the end of this eight-week eight week seminar, 
they asked us, what's a dream that you have for your family? And after a year of living crazy and a year of trying to recover, we were excited that we could finally dream again. Um, and the first thing into my head was, I would love to spend a year visiting all 50 states as a family. And I have no idea where that came from. Uh, it, it wasn't premeditated. It wasn't anything I had ever really thought of before. We'd never talked about it. He blurted it out and I said, whoa, that sounds fun. Not sure how that's going to work, but <laughs> fun. Yeah. And so we just sat on it, you know. And uh, how long? Six weeks? Eight weeks? Maybe less. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It, it was in November when that question was asked. And around Christmas, we were having some downtime. You know, we were on break from work and um, just with family. And uh, and Eva asked, what did you have in mind for that? I was like, I don't know. She just asked what was a dream we had, and that's what came out. Um, so then we just started thinking, okay, well, what if we actually wanted to make good on it? What would that look like? And the first thing we thought was we don't want it to be a vacation. Um, a, we could never afford something like that. But B, we really wanted to try to finally create one of those opportunities for our kids like we had that was really life-giving and life-changing and shaping, mm -hmm. really formative. Like like even I had her in growing up visiting Mexico doing medical stuff and me going to Haiti and doing medical stuff with my family. And then our individual lives – our single lives as adults before we met working in Haiti. Um, so, uh, so we thought, well, what if we traveled around the U S and we just did service projects? We did that for a year. Um, and the more we thought about, it, we thought that'd be great for us. But and in order to make lasting change, you really have to be embedded in the community invested in their term. And we thought, okay, well, that's not us. We could actually maybe do more damage by trying to go in and doing service projects in communities than we could do good. So we thought, okay, well, what if we found people who were doing long-term lasting change and we made a documentary about them? And then we thought, what if there are kids who are doing long-term lasting change? And so we started researching. And the first kid we found is a kid named Jack Andreka. He lives in Maryland. And at the age of 15, he created a test that detects pancreatic cancer as well as a handful of other cancers. And at the time, the best test cost about 800 bucks, and it caught pancreatic cancer around stage three, sometimes stage four, often too late to do any good. And so that's actually the, his impetus for getting into it was he, he lost a family friend that way. And as a 15-year-old, decided, I want to do something about it. And so he did research, combined stuff that he was learning in science in his chemistry classes with stuff he was learning in his biology class, came up with a proposal, sent it out to 200 people, 200 different labs around the America, and got 199 rejections and one maybe. And that one maybe turned into something that kept going. And within about a year or so, he had a test that was catching pancreatic cancer at its earliest stages, and instead of $800, it was a litmus test that cost just about three cents per test. So it was thousands times more effective, um, thousands times less expensive, and he was 15 at the time. And we thought, Whoa. holy mackerel, <laughs> if, this is the first, if this is the first kid that we find that's making a difference in the world, how incredible must these kids be? And so we just started... Doing research yeah, and Googling and 
we found hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids who are doing a huge wide swath of of projects, everything from hunger to homelessness to anti-bullying. Clean water. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, dozens of projects. Environmental work. Yeah, ton, tons of stuff. Some of it's, most of it's local, a lot of it's global. Um, and we just thought, this is it. We're going to go interview these kids and make a documentary about them. And our kids are going to be the interviewers. And that was our hope. And it, it fortunately was able to happen. But we started planning this two years before we actually left. And so, like, right now our kids are 12, 10, and 8. And so two years – oh, okay. So And we just finished. So minus 3. Jack was <laughs> 9. nine. Seven and five. Seven and five. And like we had this really high expectation on our kids. And they they are kids. They're normal kids. They're not like our whole family is very normal and we're we're not highly gifted. We you know we aren't amazing. We don't have superpowers or anything. (laughs) And (laughs) and um yeah, they we have these expectations of our kids and there were times at the beginning where like are they actually going to be able to do this? Like, are we expecting too much? And, um, I mean, just, we got some training. We found some kids who actually do interviewing, who are able to teach our kids some skills. Um, we brought in filmmakers who are friends of ours to, um, teach us and our kids about editing, about lighting, about setting up shots. Our own son taught us how to do stop motion animation for our commercial. He He took a class at a local art, uh, art studio on stop motion and taught us to do that. So we started incorporating that into our videos. Yeah. And I mean, it was, it, our kids have just blown us away with their willingness, their team spirit, their enthusiasm. And, um, I mean, I, I don't know a whole lot of kids who would be able to do what they did, even though they aren't super gifted. I mean, they're great. They are, they have their gifts, but they're not like, you know, they're they're pretty normal, so. <laughs> but but I don't know very many kids who would be so willing to just work with us and mm-hmm. take direction and actually do it like their job, you know. Well, and and also to leave their friends, you know, their you know their buddies for a year. Yeah. So last September, September fourth, two thousand fourteen, we climbed into a a cargo van pulling a seventeen foot travel trailer. And we spent the next 14 months crisscrossing America. We went to all 50 states, and we interviewed about 75 young changemakers in, in all 50 states yeah. who are doing these incredible projects. And our kids totally rose to the occasion. Yeah. And there's and there's definitely a learning curve. I think the earlier interviews – Yeah, for all of us. The earlier interviews was a lot of, you know – learning <laughs> but um but they they were like setting up the camera sound and the lights whenever we needed it and just getting things set up as soon as we landed in a place and my I don't even know how to do some of that stuff the kids just took it over and I was I was in charge of like trying to get the paperwork figured out and making people feel comfortable but um yeah it it was so cool the way that our whole t- our family just worked as a team and really could depend on each other. Uh, we we found that not only are there incredible kids all over America who are doing these great projects, but in fact, our average normal everyday family rose to the occasion to do some 
pretty remarkable things, especially our kids who, mm-hmm. you know, are 8, 10, and 12. Mm-hmm. And so we were pretty amazed. And that's, yeah, so that's been our last, that's our life to date. And mm-hmm. uh, we just landed last Saturday. We flew back from Hawaii, which was our 50th state. And now we're entering into the editing and writing phase. Phase two. Yeah, phase two. The travel is over, so now we have, we're actually, we've decided we're going to make a, we're going to try to sell a series that's all about kid change makers, like for television or web. And then we're also going to make a documentary about how, how our family has been transformed over the last few years of downsizing our lives and, and doing this project. And then we're going to do a book for each one of those film projects, uh, a, a children's book about change makers around America, and then a young adult adult book about life lessons we've learned by traveling on the road. And then we're also partnering with some friends who are psychologists here in Pasadena, um, and we're doing a child development study to find out what actually shapes kids to want to be change makers, with the hope that we can try to create environments that foster this kind of behavior so we can create real resources, really be able to go out and equip and resource um, kids, parents, teachers, community leaders um, to create environments that really foster change-making in youth so that we can be a part of a whole dynamic shift in culture that um, that gives kids the opportunity to and resources them with, um, with things that they need to go out and make a difference in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay. That was epic, and now I know why Yana introduced me to you guys. <laughs> okay, so uh, lots and lots of questions uh, that come from all of this. Uh, you know, b- both of you mentioned very, very early experiences uh, of being kids who are impacting the world. And you want to dig deeper and go more specific. Uh, you know, Matt, I came across a video uh, that you had put on YouTube of one of your own specific experiences, and I, I really wanted you to tell that story here because it was so profoundly beautiful. Um, and you know, Eva, I was wondering if you have even in, in your own life specific moments growing up that ultimately, you know, would have led to where you guys ended up going with all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, I'm guessing that the story you're talking about is with sister Rosie in Haiti. It is. Yeah. So when I was seven, my parents decided that they were going to do this thing where we would go to Haiti and, uh, we would relieve missionaries who were down there full time. Um, and my parents would take over a local clinic and, uh, they would work alongside other people who were there full time. Um, and also, uh, local, uh, Haitian doctors and nurses who worked at the clinic. Um, and they would see patients and we would spend about a month there on vacation, um, of their, well, it wasn't on vacation. It was their vacation time from work. And, uh, and then we kids, the, the first time it was me and my four brothers. So five boys. And uh, we ranged from in age from I think my youngest brother was three and my oldest brother was like fifteen, and uh, we uh, we would spend the morning doing homeschooling and we would spend the afternoon playing soccer and climbing trees and eating mangoes and stuff like that. Um, it was brilliant. <laughs> it was it was fantastic. But after a few days, maybe a week or so, I started really getting antsy because I was watching my parents. We got to go into the clinic and sit with them sometimes and see what they were doing. And it was, it was amazing to watch my parents doing what they did really for the, for for us, for the first time, you know, in, in the States, I grew up in Indiana, you know, I couldn't go into my dad's practice and watch him treat patients. Um, but 
in Haiti, I could. I could sit in there and I could watch him work with the translator and I could see him treat patients and he would let me go in and put on a lead vest and do x-rays old school style, like standing in front of the x-ray machine and I could, you know, I could see the actual like two by three foot print, you know, screen and it was crazy. And um, it was so fun to like get a glimpse of that, but I was getting antsy because I was like, well, you guys get to come down and make a difference, but what about me? I thought we were all coming to be missionaries. And so far, mostly what I'm doing is like homeschool and playing. And so my folks actually took that seriously. And uh, they asked one of the nurses who is there full time, we call her Aunt Martha. She's she's an amazing lady. And I got to meet her on the road. Yeah. Our whole family did. Yeah, we got to hang out with her in Indiana this year. Neat. Amazing lady. So I'm, you know, I'm 40 now, and I was seven at the time. And, uh, and so I told Aunt Martha, I was like, hey, when do I get to help? And so she said, I have the perfect thing. I'm going to take you down the road and introduce you to my friend, Sister Rosie. Sister Rosie is probably in her 60s, but she looked like she was in her 80s. Um, she was in a wheelchair. She lived in a little mud hut that was, I don't know, probably 8 by 8, maybe 8 by 10. Um, she had a bed. Um, she had a little chair that I could sit on. She had a little area for cooking over a wood fire inside her house. Um, so she had a little pot. She had some clothes. That was about it. Um, and every day then I would take rice and ice to Sister Rosie and uh, and I would sit with her and we would try to communicate. I didn't speak any Creole. She didn't speak any English. Um, but we would try to tell about each other's lives and we used a lot of hand signals and uh, and we found out that, you know, we knew some similar songs. She knew them in one language and I knew them in another. But we would sing together in different languages and we started to become friends. And on Sundays, I would push her to church in a wheelchair. And uh, when I was, you know, when I was seven, it really made me feel like I was making a difference in this woman's life. And if nothing else, she was making a huge impact on me. Um so I did that for the rest of our time there, and I got a chance to meet up with her again when we went back, and I was older, and you know I got to that was my that was kind of my job, you know. Um, when I was in college, my dad and I started taking some college groups down to Haiti. Um, so this is you know fast forward what, like eleven, twelve, maybe years, something like that, um, and we went back to that little village. And I asked around, I was like, hey, is Sister Rosie still here? And they said, no, you know, she died just three weeks ago. Um, and I was, you know, I was really sad. I, I called my mom. We cried on the phone. Um, I really wanted to see her again. Um, but we, uh, you know, we moved on and did some more work. And a few years later, I ended up living down there. I met Eva. We started our family. Um, we moved to L.A. I got a job. You know, we did all these things that we talked about earlier. And then this project idea came along. And for Christmas, two years ago, we were preparing for the project, hoping to leave in about six months, um, trying to show our kids, you know, that they could make a difference, um, hearing all these stories of kids who were making a difference. And uh, my mom, she sent me a letter, and this is my gift for Christmas. Um, in the letter, she explained that, when Sister Rosie died, um, she had very little in her hut still, um, you know, the things that I had mentioned before. Um, and she had her Bible. And in her Bible was a bookmark. And the bookmark was a picture of a little seven-year-old kid 
pushing her to church in a wheelchair. And it was me. And um, I, I, I got that letter and I got the picture. Um, and I just lost it. Um, and I, you know, I talked about it with my family and told the story and, and it really just hit me. Like it didn't just make an impact on me. I really did make an impact on that, on that woman, um, sister Rosie and just being a friend, you know, I didn't have to be a doctor. I didn't have to be a nurse. I didn't have to be a filmmaker or a teacher or, any of those things. I could be a seven-year-old kid who just gave her time and attention and vulnerability. And, uh, and it was enough to make an impact on her life. And, uh, it, it hit pretty hard. Um, an amendment or, uh, an addendum to the story is that while we were on the road, my, uh, my son was digging through my Bible and in it, he found this card that I had that was years and years and years old. I don't even know how old it was, but it was a card from Aunt Martha. And in it was a picture of Martha and Sister Rosie sitting on Sister Rosie's bed in her hut. And next to them is Sister Rosie's Bible, and it's wide open. And in the Bible is the picture of me pushing her to church in the wheelchair. It's sitting there. And I had had that picture you know, my whole life or as long as I can remember stuffed away in my Bible and didn't even realize it. And I'd never noticed the picture of me, you know, in the Bible next to her. So it was just, that was just amazing and really cool to, to see all that Mm kind of come full circle. And I showed my kids and my son, Jack just bald. And yeah, (laughs) it was, so it was, it was a really power. That was a powerful experience early on that came back full circle decades later. Mm-hmm. Um, to just show me that, um, you know, kids really can make an impact in the world and really do make an impact mm-hmm. in the world. So and, powerful. you know, and Eva, Eva's been pointing out, you know, since we've been traveling, every kid makes an impact in the world just by being here. The actual, like the act of being born and coming into a family's life, into a parent's life dramatically changes everything about that family unit, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether it's a single parent or a couple or a foster family or whatever it is, being born alone makes a huge impact on everybody around you. And that's just sort of like a foretaste, uh, a glimpse into mm-hmm. the possibilities mm-hmm. that are there. Um, I, I don't know, Serena, if you have kids, but I don't yet. Yeah. Um, when we brought Jack home for the first time, it was the scariest, most terrifying, most wonderful, exhilarating, yeah, it was exhausting, (laughs) awe-inspiring, exhausting, all those things at the same time. Like, yeah, you you know, we slept four hours a night, waking up over and over again, changing diapers, cuddling him when he cried, cuddling each other when we cried. (laughs) uh you know and a few weeks into it we thought how are we surviving this and at the same time it was the most wonderful amazing thing we could ever imagine it was the hardest most challenging most beautiful thing ever and doing this year 
was, another, was very similar. <laughs> another, another pregnancy, labor, and delivery. Yeah, where we <laughs> process. Where, yeah, where we really we learned that life is made up of those incredibly challenging, you know, exhausting, life giving, beautiful, horrible, wonderful things, um, and that's where that's where the the meat of life really is. That's where, that's like sucking the marrow out yeah. of life. You know, that's, that's where it comes into its deepest, most profound mm-hmm. wonder. Mm-hmm. It's not in all the stuff. It's and not it's, in finding comfort. It's not in, it's the challenge. It's not in ease. It's in the beauty of the tempest. Yeah, and, uh, for sure. It's crazy, but it's, you know, you're really alive whenever you're going through challenges, whenever everything's easy, it's, it's really easy to get numb and go on autopilot and not really make choices anymore. But whenever you're having challenges, it's the time whenever you're like choosing again to keep trusting that things are going to be okay, that, you know, and keep on choosing every second that you're not going to give up, that you're going to stay together, that you're going to conquer this beast that is happening right now and you're going to be fine. And yeah, it's you. You don't get to have those choices whenever everything's so easy. So sometimes life isn't easy, but even routine. Um, yeah, routine. Sometimes you get into routines that are destructive, and uh, or and you forget. You ha- you get a false sense of security. Like that was one thing that we had when we were getting into the grind of the daily grind kind of a thing. Was we had this false sense of security that made us feel like we were in charge and everything was going to be okay. And, you know, 2008 came around and we had tons of friends that were losing their jobs. And all of a sudden it became really clear, like this false sense of security that we have in our mortgage and in our jobs and in our family and in all the lessons that the kids are in and all that stuff. It's a ruse, man. It's a, it's a, it's an illusion that, um, that everything is, cool and gliding along and just going to be fine and easy. And the reality is there's risk throughout all of life. And if we really embrace that risk and if we start looking at life in a different sort of a way, um, our senses become more alive. Like Mm -hmm. it's like when you do something physically challenging, like a big hike or I've never gone skydiving, but I can imagine something like that where it's a real life and death, sort of a risky adventure kind of a thing. Your senses become alive in new ways. And in that, you start soaking up so much more of living. Mm -hmm. When you get into these routines where you get up in the morning and you grab your coffee and you go to work and you grind through the day and you come home and you survive dinner and you get the kids in bed and you look at each other and you're like, hey, one more day down. Mm -hmm. It's, it numbs you to the reality that life is full of wonder mm-hmm. and beauty and challenge and risk. And and you don't have to make crazy risks like skydiving. <laughs> I don't think I'd ever want to make that risk. <laughs> but, I mean, just risking reaching out to a, a stranger, like being more vulnerable or, or like seeing how you can help somebody out, letting somebody interrupt your routine. Instead of saying, no, I don't have the time for it. You know, just it's really, there are really easy ways that 
can turn into amazing surprises or even amazing challenges that are hard, but at least it's, it's something different and you let yourself have that. And it's where you grow. It's where you grow and change. I mean, there's nothing more mind numbing and life numbing than going through the same kind of routine every day and getting in, getting so involved in the root, the routinization of life Mm-hmm. that you forget to be really living. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not to say that you can't have a nine-to-five and have a fully life-giving, beautiful existence, mm-hmm. but so much of it involves being willing to being willing to be pushed out of your comfort zone mm-hmm. and to, to not get so comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't have to take your family on a year-long road trip to all 50 states and do something you know, bizarre like that. Yeah, but you could maybe take your family and go pick up some trash off the road or off the side of the road. And and whenever you do things that are outside of the norm, people see it and maybe it might change them or help them to think that, wow, that person's picking the trash that I just put there. Maybe I shouldn't do that, you know, or something like that. I mean, just it's- stepping out and doing something different instead of being afraid of what other people are going to think or something like that. And it changes you because you're in the midst of it picking up trash and you see your neighborhood in a new way. You recognize businesses that maybe you have never shopped at before that you've never patronized and you start to meet neighbors because people are, you're seeing people on the street. You're not just driving by. Um, you, you start to have conversations and actually meet the people who live in your communities around you. You get engaged mm-hmm. um, in, in life outside of the, of the routine. Yeah. Um, Hopefully invested in more relationships. Yeah. And yeah, ideally, yeah, ideally opening yourself up to opportunities to get uncomfortable, to be vulnerable, get dirty and learn and grow and, and hopefully be inspired to make a difference too, you know, to, mm-hmm. you know, to affect change. So, you know, I think it's really fitting that you brought up uh, risk of all things. Uh, one of the things that I find very interesting about both of your backgrounds is you come from families where your parents were doctors and nurses. And as an Indian person, this is very intriguing to me because, uh, you know, if I came from a family of doctors, I come from a family of college professors and we were all encouraged to become doctors. My sister is one. I'm curious how neither of you ended up as doctors. <laughs> I don't like blood. <laughs> it grosses me out. My dad would talk to us at the dinner table about operations that he and he would use great detail. And I would just totally feel like I was going to lose my dinner the whole time. And I would scream and say, stop it. Stop it. I need to stop. I'm going to vomit. Stop. <laughs> so, yeah, the, it, it really grossed me out. And... The schedule was, um, it was really a hard balance in my family's life. And I could see my mom stressed out a lot. And so I kind of decided early on that I didn't want to marry a doctor, although I love my dad dearly and I really respect him. He has a great heart and loves people. And I mean, he's, he's impacted our, the, the town that I grew up in so much so that if I were to go into a, well, a few years ago, or I don't know, five, ten years ago, I went into a McDonald's bathroom. I wasn't actually buying anything there, but I had to go to the bathroom, so I snuck in the back and went to the bathroom. And the lady said, are you Dr. Hendrickoff's daughter? You know, <laughs> and I was like, yeah. So, I mean, they, they just, 
people just loved my dad so much. So um, I don't have any anything disrespectful to say about my dad. He's amazing. But I, I didn't want to have to deal with the stress of the schedule. <laughs> yeah. My family, it's funny because, honestly, between our two families, there are four kids in Eva's family, six kids in my family. Her brother is the only one who went into medicine in any way. He's a PA, a physician's assistant. And a homesteader. Um, so he works part-time as a physician's assistant and the rest of the time as a, as a farmer. Um, and uh, none of my family went into medicine either. And our folks didn't really push us in that way. They really, at least for my family, when I was growing up, my parents wanted us to do things that were life-giving to us and recognize that medicine may or may not be a part of that. Um, you know, I kind of, as a kid, thought, oh, I'd I'd love to be a doctor. I watched my dad do stuff and loved it. I remember in middle school, we got a chance to do, um, what's it called? A shadowing. And, you know, I told my dad, I want to go to the hospital. Who do you think I should shadow there? And he talked to me a long time about what things I was interested in. And I ended up being able to shadow a radiologist. And it was really fun. I had, I had a good time learning about that. I think some of that stemmed out of being really little and my dad letting me go to the x-ray room with him when we were in Haiti. Um, but ultimately as we got older, they really wanted us to follow what was our heart's desire, things that were deep inside of us and our skill sets. And, um, for Eva, she was a people person, um, and, uh, teaching and engaging and education seemed to be a decent fit and, um, and outdoor living and working and exploring the outdoors was a big thing for her. Um, so her education has revolved around those things. And for me, I loved stories and I loved movies and I loved being on stage. Um, and so theater and movies and storytelling and all those things just sort of came naturally and our folks let us do it. And, and they encouraged us. They stood behind us. <laughs> I remember when I was in, when I was in, uh, in college, I was just finishing up school and I had this idea. I had been doing some traveling with a, 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 a summer theater program through our my university. And it was great. I got paid to do 50 shows in 60 days all around America. It was so fun. Um, yeah, it turns out Eva ended up actually going to one of those or maybe even two of those shows that I was in. And we, we probably even met sometime but didn't know it. Um, we had a mutual friend she grew up with and I went to college with her. But uh, I did the I did these traveling shows and I wrote my own show and I wanted to tour it around America and um, so me and my buddy and a friend got together and I wanted my younger brother Michael to go with and he was in college still and we brought he wanted to do it it sounded like a great idea and we took it to my parents and the idea was my brother was going to have to drop out of college for a year to do this <laughs> this traveling theater show. Um, and he wasn't studying theater. He was studying something totally separate. And uh, But he was a great musician, and uh, I wanted to spend time with him. And so we took it to my folks, and my folks were like, how is this going to affect, you know, college? How is this going to affect your studies? How is this going to affect um, your scholarships? All those things. And Michael had looked into it all, and this college is going to let him keep his scholarships and just take a year off and come back and keep going or whatever. And um, and my folks are like, oh, well, this sounds like a pretty awesome opportunity. You guys should do it. <laughs> and 
just being given not just that kind of permission, but encouragement, mm-hmm. you know, was something that at the age of 20, I thought, my folks believe in me. Mm-hmm. I should believe in me too. Mm-hmm. And uh, Matt's parents are really unique. That wasn't totally my experience, but I have good parents too. (laughs) 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 But his parents are pretty unique. (laughs) Yeah. So taking risk was something that both of our parents showed us to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was something that, at least in my family, we were encouraged to do. Um, of Of the six kids in my family, all five of us boys, at one point or another, have ended up doing some kind of some kind of like uh missions work missions service work, work service work kind of a thing where we were either traveling to another part of the world or another part of the country um often to live there was there was a time when we were in Haiti I had a brother in Africa and I had a brother in Indonesia um and my my parents and other siblings were back in Indiana and just kind of you know they instilled something in us to make us all feel like we could make a difference in the world and would, would be willing to take risks enough to go out and do it. And yeah, so we were pretty fortunate to have that shaping and we want to give that to our kids too. Yeah. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What's been the impact of your backgrounds in teaching and community development uh, on the work that you've done on this project? I think for me, having grown up seeing the face of poverty um, in Haiti and Mexico and Romania and different places, um, and seeing a role that I could have in it, it made it really clear that what the youth were doing that we were going to be interviewing uh, was and was not unique. Uh, there are people all over the globe who are doing incredible things to make the world better. M many of them youth. Most of those in leadership are adults. And um, I knew what could be done, and I had a sense from my own personal experience that kids could be a part of that change making. And then when we started seeing stories that kids were already doing that change making, it really brought our, our experiences and our dreams together. Mm -hmm. You know, it brought the experiences that we had in community development where we were working with the poor, seeing what their real needs were, asking them what they wanted and needed, and working alongside them to try to figure out how to get those needs met. And they were re very real needs, not just like, you know, when I when we think of first world needs, we think of things like, oh, my cell phone died, you know, I need to plug it in. Or um, my car broke down, how am I going to do this, that, or the other? And we were working with people whose needs were, how am I going to eat the next meal? You know, how am I going to get medicine for my kid who's sick and dying? Um a lot of you know some very some very primal needs um and so uh growing up experience working with people in that way and trying to help them figure out how to get those needs met so that we could eventually disappear and not have to be a part of the equation um so they could be self sufficient yeah self sufficient self sustaining and continue to grow and thrive on their own those things really shaped us as we started putting the project together because, A, we had already been a part of seeing something start from an idea and growing through a project completed in a lot of different levels. I mean, we saw that in our community development work, but then we also saw it in, I mean, every time I, I did a play, I got to see that come to play, come to pass. You know, when we did our tour with my brother and buddies, you know, we started with the idea and within a year and a half of that original idea, we had did a four, we had toured 45 shows around the U S and mm -hmm. raised enough money to move to Haiti for six months, mm -hmm. um, and do community service work there. Um, so there was, I think that community development stuff really impacted us in a lot of ways. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's shaped us from 
at the core. Yeah, and I think I think with working with the poor and being exposed and and becoming friends with orphans and um, people who are you know don't have it easy by any means, it's it's been an interesting experience this trip for us because we we had and we have a great community of support, but there were times sometimes when we were out on the road and, um, you know, we're, we're feeling kind of isolated and on our own a bit. And there were times whenever the funding was just really trickling in and we were barely (laughs) having enough to, we were having just enough to be able to get to the next place. And we were like, but as we were making plans, we were like, well, I hope this can happen right now. We don't have the money to be able to do this, but I guess this is the plan. And then if it doesn't work out, we'll, we'll figure out plan B. But like, I mean, I don't want to sound, um, oh, what's the word? I don't want to sound like I understand what it is to be a person who is trying to survive day to day in a third world situation. By any means, or even here in America, like real homelessness, real real poverty, or whatever. But there were we always had we always had friends and family we could go to. You know, we We there was there was always an out where if it ran all the way out and we were literally just stuck. Stranded, yeah. Yeah, we could call a family member or a friend and say, "Hey, listen, we need to hunker down until we figure until we can get this figured out." We always had that back. We always had that you know, backup plan. Yeah. And there were some times whenever we were wondering if we were going to have to take that backup plan. But, um, but just having those experiences of not having the certainty necessarily, I mean, definitely, I mean, like I said, it wasn't, it's not a perfect scenario because we always did have an out, but if we like didn't even want to consider having to use that out because I don't know, we just didn't want to have to, but, um, we like if if a person like if if the size of a whole person is the whole difficulty of of poverty and homelessness and hunger and that sort of thing, we were able to like experience maybe a hair or a fingernail we, we gotta, <laughs> of, we gotta, of what that was like, and it was really scary at times. I mean, it was terrifying, but like having that experience as kids and then later as young adults in. Um, and among those who are very poor gave us the, 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 the ability to remember that this is what people like have to live with and it's terrifying. So what, that, what must that be like to, to not have an out? It gave us a taste into the fear or the anxiety or the stress or the confusion or whatever whatever those emotions or or feelings are amongst people who are really, really struggling. Yeah. We got just a glimpse into it, a taste, um, to give us a little bit more compassion, God willing. Yeah. And empathy to some degree, um, more than just sympathy. And that, you know, that's valuable. That's a huge, that's a huge piece because not only did, not only did we say, Oh man, I thought we knew poverty because we were working amongst the poor. Now we're feeling poverty in a new way that's terrifying some mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. We could identify a little bit more. But then there's another piece of it too where we were able to look and say, all those people who are living in abject poverty that we were getting to be friends with and growing in relationship with in Haiti and other places, they have such joy. 
they have such full lives in spite of the lack of stuff. Um, in spite of the fact that they're not always sure where the next meal is going to come from. So many of our friends had this deep joy, this deep, um, peace, contentment, um, it in comes the midst, from community. In the midst of all that. And so much of it comes from community. And we were able to, in those dark moments in our life on the road, be able to say, we have community. We can find joy in this trial. We can, we can be thinking about how we're going to learn and survive this as opposed to getting overwhelmed and just swept under the wave of this, you know, this terrifying experience. Mm-hmm. And so it, I think it shaped us. I think it helped to play a role in a lot of ways with both empathy and also with hope. Mm-hmm. We have a lot to learn from the third world people of the world. A lot. I mean, <laughs> I think we get so distracted with all the gadgets and all the, the materialism and consumerism that we forget people. And so we forget that that person who is laying on the side of the sidewalk with their sign and completely filthy is actually a person because we don't allow them into our community or we're not part of their community or something. And so it doesn't really matter. But the real truth is that every person is of equal value and it doesn't matter the degrees or the amount, the paycheck that comes home or whatever, how big the house is or whatever. It's the soul. People have souls and, Every person's soul is of equal value and needs to be treated that way. And we have so much to learn from everyone around us. I mean, clearly, we learned so much from these youth that were changing the world that we were meeting this year. And we learned so much from our own children as we watched them thrive this year um, and rise to the occasion. Those are, those are simple, easy-to-see examples of how kids can teach us about the you know about life and it's not just kids it's everybody every single human out Mm -hmm. there has the potential to teach you how to be a better person Mm -hmm. to show you and to and to light up something in you to to illuminate something within you to see um more about truth more about um, what really is of value. What's really important. What really is of value. Yeah. yeah. Earlier, uh, you mentioned the expectations and pressure that come when you get into this a lifestyle uh, and get sucked into the mentality of keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. And I'm wondering how you make good on a dream in spite of those expectations and those pressures. Yeah. You know, we're, we're in the midst of trying to figure that out now. Actually, <laughs> We, uh, coming home we're you know, we're coming back to a mortgage. We don't have renters here anymore. Um, we're coming back to expectations. We see our, our friends and our neighbors that, you know, every day are heading out to their gymnastics classes and soccer games and jobs and all those things. And, um, and our whole family, adults and kids are looking at it and saying, how does what we just learned fit into our day-to-day routine now that we're here? Um, and I think a big piece is what we had mentioned before. Um, 
and that's awareness. Um, being aware of the people around you, being aware of your situation in your life, um, being aware of everything sort of in the day to day. Right now, it would be very easy for us to get swept into the panic of how we're going to reestablish our lives, just as much as it was before easy for us to get swept up into the keeping up with the Joneses thing. Mm -hmm. So it really is a lot about balance and trust and recognition of, you know, the, you know, trying to keep the values at the core. Um, One thing that we're trying to do um, just to keep aware is uh, every dinner that we have together every night, um, we ask questions of each other and we, we take time to um, talk about the highs and the lows. And then we, um, sometimes we ask if anybody needs to ask for forgiveness of something, of somebody else around the table. And then something else that we're trying to make regular is um, how did you make the world a better place today? And just to try to, like, try to remember that that's, and is to, you know, also think about it at the beginning of the day, too, with that with that question, so yeah. that it can be on our minds instead of, you know, striving after, what do I want to get done? What do I want out of this day? And what, what can I get? It's more, how can I give? And how can I care? And how can I um, help Sorry. others? be aware of the, the lesser person or, you know, the, the youngest kid in the neighborhood or, um, someone, that sort who, of thing. someone who's feeling locked out. Honestly, I, I suppose probably that one of the most concise ways to answer your question is to, to just sort of briefly walk through that dinner process. Um, we ask about our highs and our lows. And in that we find out what are things that were life giving today and what were things that were challenges today. And in talking about that, we also get the opportunity to talk about how did we deal with those challenges, you know? Um, and so there's, there's a lesson learned in that of, um, you know, of resilience and problem solving and all kinds of stuff. Another thing then, um, it, that we do is, uh, the forgiveness thing, um, and helping others. And that opens us up to vulnerability, humbling ourselves, humbling ourselves, so when you become vulnerable and you make yourself sort of subject to somebody else, you put yourself in a position to learn in a new way. Um, you know, vulnerability is a huge, huge educator. Um, uh, and then we also do a thing called the gratitude list where we write down things that we're grateful for. And we have a huge list. It's, you know, we filled up notebooks and we filled up um, huge poster boards and stuff like that where we've made that part of our thing. And, and in the gratitude list, in doing that, we become, that that builds on the awareness that we were talking about, that I was talking about earlier. Um, so, you know, I think, aware, like, awareness through gratitude, vulnerability, um, and service, and, uh, you know, all those things work toward contentment in a different way it's not about happiness based on what we have it's a lot of it's about how we approach life yeah we try to have a lot of conversations because we're processing a lot like 
while we were on the road, we were like our own culture. We were outside of culture and, and we were outside of time in a lot of ways. So it's very strange, like getting back into, and we have great neighbors, we have a great community, but readjusting back into a home and all those responsibilities and then time, you know, pressures or whatever it is, just like, you know, kids wanting to come play with our kids and what time, what time, what time, which is like, ah, I never had yeah. to deal with this for the last 14 months. Yeah. And also like having to, having to um, compete with, compete for the time of our kids, you know, and, and all these things, it's just, it's a lot to adjust to and mm. not always fun or easy, but, um, we're just trying to like talk with our kids a lot. And, and if they're, if they're um oh are you still there yeah oh, okay um if if they have questions about things like well why do we have to do this why is that and, and we just try to share like you know this is so important that you know we just try to share what's going on with our thinking too and we don't try to take for granted that just because we're the adult and the parent that they have to do it you know but we have to try to explain so that they can get it and want to value it as well or hopefully (laughs) or you know choose something else if they feel that too but um i don't know time time has been probably the biggest challenge and i'm i'm hoping that time can actually be a big conversation piece that we can start having with people um because so much so so much of what people and ourselves included um sort of put most of the emphasis in life on is about um, resources, um, whether it's money or our homes or our investments or our... Time is money. Yeah, you know, but time is, time is something that's, uh, it's really abstract for a lot of people, Um, but it's so controlling. When we were on the road, we, like Eva said, we kind of lived outside of time. We, we had schedules to keep. We had tons of interviews that we did. And we had lots of things on our agenda to do. But we were able to treat time in a different way. When we had a really late night interviewing, we just took the next day to sleep in. Um, when we had the opportunity to get up and do something uh, early in the morning and have a, really, you know, have a great experience, then we were able to you know choose to go to bed early that night to try to keep the balance with rest and sleep and all those things. We were able to listen to our bodies and listen to the needs of each other. Um, and we let, and so time wasn't like a ticking clock in, in, in Greek time has two sort of looks. One is chronos time, which is, you know, the clicking, the ticking clock. Um, and the other is a kairos time, which is more about seasons. And, and we were able to, for a year, for the most part, really step out of Kronos time and live in this Kairos time where we were, it, was a, it was a season that we were a part of and we were able to live even in the day-to-day with more of a seasonal approach. When it was the season of rest that we needed, we could do it. When it was a season of wakefulness, we could do it. When it was a season of opportunity, we could grasp hold of it and take, you carpe know, diem. I mean, carpe diem, you know, um, and we were able to do that in a way that, um, it, it was really it was outside of this sort of uh, clock thing, you know. In in Greek mythology, Kronos eats his children, <laughs> uh, 
And we can see in rea- in day to day life how the that clicking t- the ticking clock really does consume us, you know. Um, so I think that's going to be one of the biggest challenges, but also one of the things that I'm most interested in figuring out how to how to to adjust to, and also how to translate protect. in and protect because I want other people to have the experience that we did of living in this more Kairos kind of lifestyle, even if you have a nine to five job. And I think that that's totally reasonable. I think it's totally possible. I just want to, I want to be able to, to spend time talking with people and, and, and really digesting it more, uh, to try to figure out how can we, how can we do that? Because it is so much more life giving. And I think there are pieces of that, that, um, our society does get like whenever there are, you know, parties or you gather with friends and you just relax together and you can just talk and, and, you know, um, learn. Yeah. Mm. Holidays are great. But even just like whenever we get together for dinner with friends, we have like a chunk, I mean a small chunk, but then it does just get shut down by, Oh, we got to get, get kids to bed because they have school tomorrow or something. And Whereas whenever we were on the road, like if we wanted to talk for as long as we wanted and if the people were available, we would stay for as long as they wanted us to stay and we just would not even like, we wouldn't, I mean, unless we were really not feeling well or something, we would just savor it and and that we don't allow ourselves to just savor relationships in life like we got the chance to um, this past year and I hope that I mean, things are going to look different and we do Mm -hmm. have to figure out how to adjust and change Mm -hmm. too, but we don't want to forget the things that we've learned and we don't, we want to figure out how to translate, translate it into this new phase and this new season. And instead of just getting discouraged. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you, I'm sure you see it and you talk to people on the, this program all the time, um, who, either have gone through an experience of being sort of sucked into, um, you know, all that, you know, the rat race and everything like that and, and needed and were able to finally escape that. Um, and I would guess many of them still have nine to five jobs. So, I mean, it, it's possible. Um, we know that, we know that it must be, but, uh, we're, uh, yeah, we're, that's part of our learning curve over the next months and maybe years. Um, mm-hmm. as we, as we, try to navigate that but you know it's pretty indicative of american lifestyle that you know a huge percentage of people don't even take the vacation time that they've earned for their jobs um because somehow busyness is a higher priority than other things and you and you hear it you hear it all the time like you talk to friends you're like hey how you doing like hey keep them busy like that's some sort of like top value that you want to have busyness as a you know, as opposed to, you know, I had a, a really amazing experience with my family or my friend. You know, I was able to have this opportunity to go see this thing and learn this new skill. And there's so much more to life than busyness, and yet we we put that as a huge high priority marker. And that's 
it's related it's related to success and money and all those sorts of things i mean mm-hmm. and i think that there needs to be there needs to be it's, it's a more humbler humbler way of saying i'm making lots of money yeah <laughs> or, maybe or something maybe or but i have I, a great I, job I, or, or i just think there I, needs to be a redefinition of success yeah, yeah. Hmm. i don't know yeah. it's interesting what um has been the impact uh of all these kids that you've come across on your own kids and also uh, both of you as parents and the plan- the way you plan to raise your kids going forward. It's been fun to watch our kids explode with ideas. Mm-hmm. Like every time we leave an interview, our kids are like, oh, we could do this at our house. What would we do for our na- with our neighbors? we got to get all of our friends together and try to do something like this. Yeah. And they see – they see the joy that these young change makers have in their lives. The, the possibilities. The possibilities. Um, yeah. They see the impact that they're making. They meet the people who are experiencing the positive impact of these projects. They see that these people, these kids who are doing these great things are normal, fun, interesting. They're not like these unrelatable types of people or something that are just way out of their range of <laughs> grasping or I don't know. Yeah. But they're... they're we've met i mean the kids that we met were just they were so normal and so thoughtful and kind and inspiring and i mean all and they're this, but they're regular kids yeah. like they we saw kids have they still fights. like to play tag they they yeah. talk back to their parents sometimes too and you know like <laughs> yeah. yeah it was so i think the impact on our kids is that we've seen them get excited get creative and see the potential within themselves. And I think for our fam, for me at least, and probably for both of us, um, that impact, it's the same sort of impact on us where we look at our lives and we think, where do we want to invest our time and our energy and our resources? How can we redirect so that we can reinvest our time and our energy and our resources? Mm-hmm. And what's, what kind of gifts and, and talents and interests do we have so that we can stay connected and and be a part of it? Um, I think a big piece of it, what we learned this year, is that we want to keep collecting these stories and keep sharing them. Mm-hmm. We would love to take this project internationally because we heard so many stories on the road of kids all around the world uh, who are doing amazing things. And uh, and so that's that's inspiring to us. To we we want to we go to every school in America. And share these stories to try to get kids to recognize the potential that they have to just rock it, you know? responsibility in some ways. Like, I feel like we don't give youth the the responsibility that they can carry. I mean, they can't carry everything, but they, they can handle a lot more than we ever give them credit for. We, I think... Society thinks that they're, you know, they have to play, they have to have their lessons, and they have to have their video games or whatever it is, and they have to have these things, but they don't give them responsibilities where they actually have to be um, ready to show what they, I don't know. Well, I think I think we give our kids tons of responsibilities, but they're the wrong ones. Um, we have the kid, a lot of the kids that we met had this huge pressure and huge weight to, like, do fantastic on tests in school and uh they had to they had to be the best at the extracurricular activities that they were doing and they had to be the best musicians and and whatever um instead 
and, and, and all, and we direct all of this attention and all this pressure on things that are about performance. And I think it would be so much better to redirect um, that kind of attention and that kind of pressure, if you want to say pressure, um, on uh, on equipping kids to see and and also showing them the potential that they have to make a positive impact in the world. Because I think kids would rise to the they would learn as much and probably more than they would studying for a stupid test. If they went out and like started a project to help feed hungry people in their communities and they would become better humans in the process and they would learn life skills that after they got out of school and all the testing was over, they would actually have skills to like continue to make the world better. And confidence to and know com- that they could do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's, I, I think it's, it's less about. It's less about kids not having pressure, though that is a big piece of it. I mean, helicopter parenting and all those things, I mean, that's a lot of a new parenting lifestyle where it's all about, it's a trend where kid, you know, parents are all about trying to give their kids everything they want and make life as easy as possible. And every chance to succeed. Yeah. And, uh, without any failure, without failure, you know, and which unfortunately usually are maybe not usually, but often results in not learning when you don't learn how to fail, you don't learn how to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you don't learn how to cope. Mm-hmm. And so kids aren't resourced with coping mechanisms that actually make them, you know, solid humans down the road. So I think that redirecting the pressure to actually, uh, pressure may not be the right word, redirecting kids so that their attention is focused less on performance and more on engagement and service and, learning how to love each other. I mean, that's, man, I, I just feel like that would be, that would be such a better world <laughs> than, uh, than a performance driven kind of an education. Um, and the kids that we met on the road gave us that kind of an education. Yeah. And we're excited as a family to, to engage in different ideas and projects and, and, and include neighbors and friends and stuff to join us. Um, for the month of December, we're planning on um, participating in this thing called Dress Summer. And um, it was started by a friend of ours. And the goal is, so my daughters and I will um, wear a dress for every day in December to try to raise awareness about sex trafficking and raise money, hopefully, for sex traffic to stop sex trafficking as well through International, International Justice Mission, IJM. So we're pretty excited about that. And men can, boys, males can um, participate by wearing a bow tie every day in December as well. So it's kind of cool. I mean, it's kind of, is a small thing, but it's for a big cause. And I mean, it doesn't have to be backbreaking or totally out of your ability, you know, to do something. But we're, we have lots of dreams of different things we want to mm. do. Lots and lots. And the kids that we met along the road, they taught us that, it doesn't have to be huge to make a huge impact. Like this, the, the, the Jack, the story of Jack and Drake that we told you about the kid, you know, that's not every kid is going to have the science knowledge and wherewithal to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And not every kid needs to, but there, we learned so much from kids who had these incredible projects that were very, very simple. Mm -hmm. Um, where there's, there's a a fantastic example is a, a, a girl who lives here in Southern California, Lulu Cerrone, 
she she just turns her social activities into social action experiences. So when she's got a party and a bunch of friends are coming together, they also invite kids to bring food to donate to the local food bank when we're all getting together. Or somebody's going to have a birthday party, and instead of receiving gifts from themselves, they receive gifts that go toward helping a homeless shelter or helping uh, an animal shelter. Or So it's really just turning social activity into social action and inspiring other kids to just be more aware of others and less focused on themselves. Yeah, and more grateful, realizing we have enough. We don't need to just accumulate more and more junk. We can actually use our funding and use our resources to to help others instead of just piling more stuff on ourselves. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's just a simple idea that really is less about raising money or doing all those kind of things that can be really overwhelming and really just about changing the way you think about how you engage your world and, and taking responsibility for trying to make the world better. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it, it, it was an, I think that's inspiring to us mm-hmm. to try to think more critically about our regular everyday routines. What can we do in the little things to make the world better for our family, for the neighbors around us, and for the world at large? And it doesn't have to be, it can be, you know, totally mind-blowing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and we've had some kids tell us stories, um, share their stories with us that were totally mind-blowing. Um, and it can also be as simple as we're going to take, we're going to spend the next however much time just focusing on kindness. How can we be more kind to kids at school? How can we be more kind to people we run into at the supermarket? How can we be more kind to the people who live in our home, you know, our brothers and sisters and family members? Um, so it's, yeah. yeah, it's it runs the gamut, but it's, that's the beauty of it. Wow. Um, well, this has been amazing, <laughs> as I expected it would be. Uh, so I have one last question, uh, which is how we finish all our interviews with at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? How do you define unmistakable? However you want to define it. That's why I asked the question. Got it. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. I think it's someone who has the ability to look beyond themselves and, to see the other and the value in the other and be able be able to engage in that other with humility and love i think that's one of the big lessons we learned from these kids along the road that they were unmistakable and we were able to distinguish the kids that we wanted to interview from the kids that we didn't necessarily want to interview who are all doing great projects, but we really focused on identifying kids who have that capacity to see beyond themselves and to really want to engage with love and compassion, the world around them. And that's, I think that's what, I think that's what makes, or that's at least a piece mm-hmm. of what makes people unmistakable Mm -hmm. and I think what makes them more fully human yeah I would also add to that I feel like there are lots of qualities but I'll try to try to just name one or two um I think having courage to humble yourself and be transparent and open with people leaves a big impression 
and is inspiring. And um, also, if you try something and you fail, to have the courage to keep trying and not give up. Yeah, if you don't, that's where we learn. Um, but, you know, we learn from our failures. But we also, like Edison, we learn from not giving up in spite of all those failures. Mm-hmm. That failure at one, failure today does not mean failure forever. Um, and that's uh, that's a lesson that we're still trying to learn on our own. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lifelong lesson. Yeah. Well, um, as I said, this has been incredible and, uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and, uh, your insights with our listeners. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you Srini. It's been a real time. honor. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that Monday on the unmistakable creative. Uh, when I, when I think my work most clicks is when it's really connecting with that voice within me that has always been there, that is always there, um, that voice that, that um, other people have seen glimpses of and have said, hey, that, that, that's, that's you. That's the person we know. Um, and, and, uh, and you can see it in other people's work and filmmakers and films where you're like, okay, that, that's something new. That's something exciting. Um, that's truly their their voice. That's their heart on screen. Tune in for our conversation with Brad Montague, creator of the wildly popular web series, Kid President. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.